Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. Listeners, one and all, to an episode of our humble show, Tales of Malifaux. As I'm sure you're aware, in our last episode, we wrapped up our very first story. What you may not have been aware of is some of the behind-the-scenes mm, excitement, shall we say, that you don't get to hear. When it comes to this time of year in the broadcasting biz, programs have to go up for renewal to see if they are worthy of continuing next season. Your household name programs, such as Fireside Chats with the Governor, tend to overcome this hurdle with no efforts. Newer programs, such as this humble block, well, it's not as easy. The programs are forced to fight for their survival in front of a panel of industry experts and station staff. Sometimes the trial is through an interview. Sometimes it is based off the popularity of the program, although how like to show it is never an issue when you can just simply force people to listen. No, that method is quite rare. On occasion, presenters themselves are made to defend their slots honor in blood combat against others. Sad, but true. We have lost many of the greats that way. Since you are hearing my voice now, you must have come to the conclusion that Tales of Malifaux survived the renewal trials. Although it is not an ordeal I would like to retell any time soon, I can now bring you a new set of stories about Malifaux, but with only a minor chance of a rival Ethervox presenter trying to stab me in the back. Today I bring you Sedition. Sedition. The dark and cold came abruptly upon Malifaux, and the chill proved hard to dispel. As the last of the sun's light disappeared over the horizon and the gaslights along the cobblestone streets were lit by roving sentries, the Governor-General thrust open the doors of his study and stepped onto the balcony that encircled the upper level of his mansion. Built in haste and largely with materials he'd imported from Earth, it served as a great testament of his power and authority to the settlers travelling past his residence on the final leg of their journey from the breach and into Malifaux. The mansion stood beside the main road on a hill overlooking the city. Newcomers to this world had two great sights on either side of the road. The looming Governor's Mansion, reminding them both of home and of the man that would tame this place, or the massive hanging tree whose legend had travelled beyond Malifaux and back earthside. It might have been a typical knotwood tree, though it had grown well beyond the typical height, easily surpassing oaks. The bark was smooth and greyish-black, with sharp ridges twisting up its trunk to the leafless branches. Silhouettes of rope and the faint outline of bodies swayed in the darkness. Upon cresting the hill, however, the great city of Malifaux consumed everyone's attention as her towering structures stretched high before them. No settlers rode by at the late hour, however, and the governor had pressing matters to attend to, even so late. Down the gently sloping hill, more than a mile distant, torches were held above the heads of a growing mob near the guild security offices leading into Malifaux. Judging by the hostile shouts that carried across the distance, they intended to riot. Lieutenant, he commanded, to one of the guardsmen behind him. Report! His breath left him in a fog upon the cold air. 
Sir, the guardsman said, stepping behind him, the mob consists of miners mostly, and other settlers sympathetic to their complaints. They number near sixty. Our intelligence failed to detect the planning for this attack. Of course not. Hoffman had better be able to change that, he said of his latest recruit, a man placed in a high position specifically to break the nonsense that cost him manpower and resources, but mostly represented a loss of control the guild had over the rabble. Across the distance, he watched the mob's torches bob as they marched upon the guild's buildings along the north side, heralding a night of murder and destruction. Sedition. He stood safely upon the balcony of his mansion, knuckles whitening as he gripped its ornate wooden railing in agitation. He had no doubt that his commands would be fulfilled and order would be restored, but the actions of the mob spoke to him in a tone no man would dare. He would make examples of these rioters. A bloody example makes for a strong teacher, he'd often instructed his marshals. The fireplace within the study cast a warm glow upon his shoulders, and four dark shadows of men stretched around him. One man stepped to his side, the iron of his heels ringing on the hardwood like horseshoes. The governor continued staring at the mob, now mobilizing and marching through the cobblestone streets. Captain Gideon, he said. Sir, my men and I can ride hard and engage the mob before damage is done. I'm sure you could, Captain, but guards are already moving to handle this nuisance. It is time for you and me to finalize the arrangements for the contract we discussed. Yes, my contract. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, well, my family, sir, back Earthside. We need the Governor-General cut him off. That mob, Captain Gideon. What do you make of it? Gideon followed his gaze toward the city, and the mob marching upon the security facility at the gates of the Guild Enclave. They're just men, confused, angry, desperate to do something to change circumstances they do not understand. Yes, the Governor said gravely. You would understand desperation, would you not? Gideon did not respond, though his teeth gnashed audibly. He continued. They are angry because we abandoned their colleagues, friends in the northern mountains. Gideon nodded. The Ice Witch, I've heard. I'm sure the Witch Hunters will bring her to justice soon. Reopen the mountain pass. We'll save those miners up there. To hell with the miners. Sir? That damned unnatural storm rages, closing every path for miles around. The miners up there are already dead, or soon will be. Assess the situation for me, Captain. Gideon's training allowed no hesitation. Tactically sound decision. She has the upper ground, and weather is clearly on her side. The loss of a small group of miners is acceptable against the additional loss of our guardsmen and witch hunters. Very good, Captain Gideon. And the mob down there will break them up. Send them on their way, interrogate those in command. And loss of life? Minimal. But we do what we must. The governor nodded. We do what we must, he agreed. That group is well organized, don't you think? Yes. Militant. Focused. We've not been able to infiltrate their ranks. They are a strangely organized and disciplined lot. Far more disciplined than a typical mob. They have a clearly well-defined objectives in their movements, direct and purposeful. What disturbs me is not their ability to organize. It is their ability to remain silent. Even under rigorous interrogations by the judge and an eager executioner nearby, they do not break. What does this mean, Captain? He asked, continuing the odd testing of Gideon's judgment. Again, Gideon did not hesitate. 
Absolute loyalty to strong leadership. Fervent. The union leaders? More. There must be more to it than that. Like an army. To beat an army, you must break the soldiers or take out the command structure. And these soldiers fighting against us? Minus. We must find their leadership. And then, Gideon said simply, kill him. The governor general smiled, still staring at the transgression about to befall across the valley and within the city. It's that easy? Necessary. Minimize casualties. End the conflict. Make a point to stave off further rebellion. The governor waved his hand, dismissing the others with the gesture. They left through the study, and the governor turned away from the view of the mob descending upon his security buildings. Gideon, however, could not pull his eyes from the revolt in the city below, agitated that he could not be there himself. You and I have been brought together by fate, it seems, Captain. You have an urgent need for your family. Your wife still earthside. When you approach me regarding my desire to hire a mercenary for an urgent and discreet mission, you pleaded for the position yourself. I believe you used the term desperate. Gideon fidgeted uncomfortably. That's why we're fortunate that fate brought us together, so that we might help one another. You will operate outside of the jurisdiction of the guild. Gideon nodded. There is a girl. A prostitute. I need her eliminated. A girl, sir. Karai and Koku, a groundskeeper by day. Kill her. A groundskeeper? A prostitute? Our contract is worth this one girl. If you can fulfill this agreement before the sun sets again. With discretion. Gideon nodded and left to begin his search for this prostitute, Karai and Koku. Fire lit the northern perimeter of the city. Quickly and hungrily engulfing the surrounding buildings as the flame from the security facility spread while the guard dealt with those that had brought the fire, rather than the fire itself. The governor sighed in frustration, the fog of his breath developing around him in the crisp air, and he watched a building burn. The crack of gunfire echoed across the distance. Are you looking for a place to take the family? Why not bring them down to Marcus's Beastery? Come and see the many beasts of Malifaux all in one place. Come and take a walk down the Trail of the Gods, where you can see the majestic three-headed Cerberus, the sometimes rude Kojo, the always cute Mole Men, and don't forget, the never-born beasts that have been trapped in caves for your viewing pleasure, Cupsalurids, and the ancient Waldegeists. This is just a small sampling of the many beasts for your eyes to feast on, while at a Marcus's Beastery. Wait, did someone say feast? We also have the renowned restaurant The Hunger Cry, where you will howl with delight at the exquisite dishes that will domesticate your hunger. If that's not enough fun for one day, be sure to go and see that mesmerizing Miranda, capable of shape-shifting into any beast you can imagine. One second for day. Don't miss it! Follow the call of the wild and bring your herd to Marcus's Beastery, located near Fortune Falls. Not responsible for my new being turned into a beast mob, Beastie Marcus Beastery. Enter at your own risk. Now, back to our show.
guild deputies that killed the rioters that night. It was hell. The miners mounted into a maddening frenzy, hurling their torches to feed more of the city to their insatiable fire. In contrast, the guild marshals were coolly efficient and surgical, where the mob was rage and fire. That zealous rage could not be extinguished as easily as the lives of these miners, and the marshals contained the mob systematically, corralling them into a narrow street to quickly eliminate the threat in crossfire. Three buildings burned. The guild security offices had become engulfed. Windows burst from the pressure within, and the internal structure growled as the fires consumed the support timbers. As the building collapsed, the compromised foundation crumbled and the force of the fire and material of the building fell in, sinking beneath the surface. The cobblestone street about the perimeter of the building fell in as well, the entirety of it becoming a great sinkhole. It gave with a grinding of stone upon stone, and the structure fell through to the great open chasm of the intricate sewer system below. The burning buildings to either side, the sinkhole faced similar demise, and if the infrastructure below them gave way too, the whole section of town might find itself fallen into the cesspit beneath them. A guild sergeant leapt atop a pile of rubble beside the expansive hole, watching the structure's burning remains fall through the open space into the sewer's water channel several stories below. He cried, Circle rail! Hedge them off! They're not going to raise this city on my watch! Men darted between columns of fire, unable to discern the difference between enemies and guardsmen in the smoke. Cries and gunshots rang out, echoing off the towering buildings. Within minutes, the buildings immediately adjacent to the guild security offices fell. The city's townspeople, having nothing to do with the riot, were in the streets amidst the turmoil, handing buckets of water to one another in a feeble attempt to stop the fire's devastation. Some were mistakenly gunned down by the guardsmen. The miners' frenzy intensified despite their dwindling numbers. Their voices were a chorus that praised the virtue of the Union and slandered the rule of the Guild. Their labor now was revenge, a display of loyalty for their abandoned comrades. The fiery death they visited upon these Guild officers were, to them, a merciful fate compared to that unfortunate end they imagined those miners suffered at the hands of cannibals rumored to inhabit those mountain passes. The turmoil continued until the loud wailing cry of a young boy in their midst stopped their conflict. Every settler in Malifaux knew that their protection against the encroaching threat of the Neverborn was tenuous at best. Like an unspoken gentleman's agreement, everyone paused in their anger and violence to protect the truly innocent endangered by their irresponsibility. It took no time to find the crying youth, sobbing in the middle of the street. Owie! 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 While holding his skinned knee to his chest and rocking back and forth, a long shock of blonde hair matted to his forehead and across his eyes. No one had seen this boy enter the conflict. It was as if he had simply materialized among them. Hey, kid, one rather protective old man said, approaching him quickly. We've got to get you to safety. What? The boy said around breathless sobs. The fire, the old man said urgently, motioning to the burning buildings just a stone's throw beyond them. He gestured in an arc to the angry men gathered about them. And these men are fighting. His voice grew gruff, and he went to snatch the boy up and find the fool parents that brought the kid out into the bedroom. As he reached out, the boy jerked away from the old man. The boy brushed the hair from his eyes and realized his surroundings with clear distress and obvious confusion. Why are they looking at me? He asked. 
the panic mounting within him as the expression on his face conveyed that he didn't know where he was. The boy's expression flashed from pain to anger as he shrieked, Stop looking at me! The old man repeated, Come on now! with impatience. The boy jerked away again as the old man got his arms on the boy's nightshirt. The boy turned upon him in rage. I said, Stop looking at me! His eyes flashed with powerful magic unheard of in one so young. He shrieked in a tantrum of rage. Stop looking at me! He bent the very rules of reality, twisting the man's face so that his eyes ceased to be. Smooth flesh and bone replacing eyes and sockets in a blink. The man reeled backward, howling in shock, falling down and writhing in terror as he grabbed at his suddenly eyeless face. The miner's revolt was quickly forgotten as the men stared at the scene in mute confusion. One guardsman, however, stepped forward to assert his authority, intending to bring this anomaly to Sonia Crid and demonstrate his leadership all at once. He held his peacebringer leveled at the child's back, afraid of his incredible power, hoping to scare the child into quick submission. As he approached, though, he stopped short as the boy abruptly stood and turned to face him. The boy spoke to someone who wasn't there. I'm sick of this game, he said to the empty space on his left. I'm not having any fun. Oh, yeah. I guess that's a funner one. Yeah, I could do that. Do what? The guardsman said, suddenly uncomfortable at the mischievous grin upon the boy's face. His pistol shaking in a suddenly trembling hand. Another word from our lovely sponsors. You know what is utterly useless and annoying? That's right, the gremlins. Now, what if I could tell you we have found a use for them? Let's put all of those tiny digits to good use. The annoying and utterly useless team at Grinning Loom Painting Services have got so many staff, we'll have the job done lickety splits. We can't promise that it'll be the right color, style, or even on the surface you requested, but you know, it'll be quick at least. Grinning Loon Painting Services. More brushes than brain cells. Now, back to our show. Shooting the child was something he couldn't bring himself to do. That hesitation would be his greatest mistake. The boy turned to his right to address another imaginary friend. Oh, good idea. The guardsman took a cautious step back. Flying pink horses? he asked with a face of disgust. No way. I ain't no girl. I'm not going to do rainbows and fairies either. No girl stuff. Bleh. He turned to his other side, eyes beaming. Better idea, he said with a nod. That's way funner. But should we play monster or tag? Both together? He nodded and spoke to the people gathered around him. All right, friends, I'm going to be the monster first. When I catch you, you are O-U-T out. Tall flames cast long, deep shadows between the buildings. Within these shadows, countless twinkling eyes appeared. They glowed red and yellow, peering from dark forms that became quickly more substantial, coalescing into hundreds of nightmare shapes. An inky tendril shot from the darkness between buildings to wrap around the guardsman with the temerity to confront the boy. More shadowy arms, long and twisted like ropes of darkness, grabbed hold of him and tore his limbs from his torso in an effortless jerk. 
Got him, the boy said gleefully. He's out. I'm going to get you all. I'm the monster named Lord Chompy Bits. And he ran at a miner who screamed and bolted. Nightmare visions came alive around them, pouring in an endless wave from the shadows. Squat creatures with great toothy mouths snapped at them, while others with long tentacles strangled the stunned men. Those who had waged conflict against one another just moments before now ran in confused chaos, shooting or swinging upon anything that moved. Fat creatures of burlap and strange humanoid faces shambled about as grotesque mockeries of giant horrible dolls, snatching running victims in their huge open mouths, their swallowed bodies pressing visibly against the cloth in their desperation to escape. Darkness was the only quality these creatures shared. Each was composed of a seemingly random assortment of limbs with inky tentacles or knife-like talons, representing the collective nightmare images each person had visualized since earliest childhood, all come alive to feed upon them. Fear gripped the crowded men who stood motionless in disbelief. In gruesome concert, these terrible monsters lunged upon the humans that stood in their midst. The sounds of battle resumed, and shouts and gunfire filled the night. Now, however, the humans fought not against one another, but against the dark assailants. Each person fought only for his own survival against the great and unbelievable amassed horde. Just as quickly as the sound of violence erupted, the screaming and gunfire vanished as the men were torn asunder and left dead or dying in the middle of the street. Blood pooled beneath the fallen corpses of guardsmen, rioters, and townspeople caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. It drained into the gutter and ran through an open sewer gate. The living nightmares finished their carnage, slowing the assault as they ran out of victims. The boy, still scampering about, seemed oblivious to the carnage, blood, and gore about him. He yelled, Boogity! Boogity! pretending to be the monster. The smile waned as his playmates fell, leaving him alone amidst the true monsters he created. This throng gathered around the boy, countless eyes all focusing on him for direction. The boy lifted his arms into the air, and one of the creatures, very different than the others, stepped toward him. This creature, double the size of the largest human in Malifaux, was covered from top to bottom in thickly matted fur. It turned its massive head towards the humans, as one man moaned with his last breath. The light of the fire reflected off the shiny black of its huge eyes sewn to the creature's face as if they were colossal buttons, each as large in diameter as a man's chest. The shambling monster pulled back its fabric lips, exposing great jagged teeth across a mouth wide enough to swallow a man whole if the teeth each as long as a butcher's knife didn't cut him in half first. The boy looked up lovingly and said, Teddy! ignoring its gruesome mouth. And the creature did resemble a nightmarish teddy bear, though no one was there to witness it. Hungering down, the monster reached out with its thick paw, careful not to harm the boy with its dagger-like claws, and pulled him towards its chest. Yawning, the boy softly whispered, a voice barely audible over the sound of crackling flames all around. Take me home, Teddy. I'm too tired to keep playing. As the boy and his great imagined teddy bear blinked out of sight, returning to the comfort of his bed beyond the ether separating the worlds, the nightmares melted back into the shadows from which the boy had drawn them. With his control over their physical form gone, they returned to the dark depths of imagination and the narrow boundary between sanity and insanity. One great nightmarish creature remained, however, having lived for countless centuries, 
Far before the amazing child was born, it needed no external magical force to hold him in the physical world. He had been called many names through that time. The Beast, a Boggart, the Boogeyman, and the Nightmare, among many others. Although many thought he was from the same horrible place as the other Nightmare creatures, the truth was that he merely emulated them, for they had found a nearly endless sustenance, the fear and anxiety of the human psyche. Like the nightmares disappearing around him, he tormented children, feeding off the bountiful energy of their fear. He had found this boy, the dreamer, quite accidentally. The dreamer was not afraid of him, could not feed him. But the dreamer had a greater power that lured this creature to him. This boy had power over the spiritual nightmare world which could sustain him beyond all imagination. A glimpse into that great world was a portent heralding war. The insignificant life forms of this world would be mere casualties, quickly consumed and forgotten by a greater being that had begun the war so many years before. The key to his survival and power would be with the boy that could bend reality to his will. on the desk, meaning that our time today must be coming to an end. Providing that the fate of this brave new world remains lowly endangered, we look forward to seeing you again soon. Next time, we'll be going deep beneath the city of Malifaux, into our famed sewers. Be warned, it gets a little disgusting. What can I say? Bad things happen.